Welcome to the Grace College Podcast, a ministry of Grace Bible Church located in College Station, Texas. We desire to impact students who will impact the world for Christ. Hope you enjoy the talk and hang around for more after. Uh, How are y'all doing this morning? Yeah, it is a great morning to be here. Glad you are here together. Uh, Man, we are, it's been a fun weekend. Uh, The weather is changing. It is beautiful. If you haven't been outside yet, you've been in your room all weekend, I encourage you to go step outside and enjoy the beautiful fall weather. This is one of my favorite times of year. Absolutely beautiful. Hey, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, so you can be flipping there. And uh, we are continuing a series called Upside Down Living and looking at the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' instruction in the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be looking at a big section this morning. So I'm just going to read some snapshots of the whole section for us um, as we we get ready to to jump in. And starting in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says this, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard it said that those of By those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Thanks, Jesus. Verse 27, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with a lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Verse 38, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Verse 43, you've heard it said, you shall not love your neighbor, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Let me pray for us. Lord, I I read these words, and they are indicting to me. Um, I, I know that as I look at my heart, as I look at myself, I do not measure up to your standard, to the law that you expose And so, Lord, I pray that as we open up this section of Scripture, as we dig into your teaching, that you would open up our hearts. And, Lord, you'd bring conviction, but also your grace in this moment. Lord, we love you, and we lift up this time to you. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about conflict. And we're talking about upside-down living, the, the way that Jesus desires us to live, and it's in a way that's upside-down from the rest of the culture, from the rest of the world. And I'll tell you what, in every community you're involved in, conflict will come. Marriage is great. See where I'm headed with this? Marriage is awesome. I love marriage. Um, I have a wonderful wife, got wonderful kids from that process of marriage. It's a great thing. And two people coming together is a great thing. I mean, being in that loving community of relationship is a great thing. But I'll tell you what, 
It didn't always start great. Conflict immediately inserts itself into marriage early. So I remember we, we got engaged, and it was a beautiful engagement. We were in, uh, we were in California. We went to uh, Lake Tahoe, and uh, all of our family and friends were there, and I proposed to her, and it was amazing. We went back and celebrated with family and friends there in, in California, and, and then we drove back home, and then we started the wedding preparations, right, a.k.a. the roots and seeds of conflict, right? And so you pick things, right? You pick a date. You have to agree upon a date. You pick a location. You got to agree upon a location. You pick the price that you're willing to pay for all of those different things. You pick a wedding corner, maybe. You pick a dress. Okay, so all those things, guys, you have little involvement. It's merely a, baby, that sounds awesome. You, you want to get married there? That's great. Y'all, your parents are paying or whatever? That sounds perfect. And you just agree like, hey, that sounds awesome. And then there came the point in the process where we decide on the guest list. That's where conflict began for me. I mean, I didn't care about the dishes. I didn't really care about what we were getting at Bed Bath & Beyond. It's like, baby, if you want it, we're going to put it on the registry. But when it came to picking who could come, that's when conflict arose. And so I made my list of people that I wanted to invite, my family, my friends, the people that I wanted to get there. And then she invited, uh, and you know, we sent that to my mom, and then she added some family and friends to, to my mom. And then we sent that, those two combined lists over to my mother-in-law. So my wife and mother-in-law looking at this list at these several thousand people that we had accumulated on that list. And then they start adding their people, and they add their list, and they look at this, and they go, okay, Kevin, here's our number. We're going to invite this many people, and you exceed that exceedingly. So who, who do you not really like? Who are you ready to cut from the list? And I'm like, I'm like, I can't cut them. I've known them since I was two. And they're just like, not anymore, right? You're going to cut it at this point. And all of a sudden, we had conflict over this. And I'm not the only one. In fact, if you have a goal of getting married, just be ready for that conflict to first come. And I remember I was counseling one couple as they're dealing with this. And they're like, gosh, it's so hard. I mean, there's so, many, so much tension between us. I mean, I, we just want to elope. And I look at him in the eye and I go, dude, Unless you plan on never seeing them again, this is the first of many conflicts you get to walk through, right? Because there'll be conflict over where do we go for Thanksgiving? Where do we go for Christmas? How are the kids going to be raised? Where are they going to go to school? This is just the beginning, people. This is your first opportunity to deal with that in that relationship. Because wherever two and more are gathered, conflict ensues, right? That's true, And you've seen this with your roommates. You've seen this with your teammates. You've seen this in every community you've been in. Conflict creeps up in every one of our lives. Communities create conflict. But not only do they create conflict, conflict can literally break a community apart. And so what creates conflict? I'll tell you this. What creates conflict? Me. For every one of us, if we look to the bottom of every one of the conflicts you've been in, no matter what relational bandwidth you're in, there's one common denominator in every one of the conflicts that has been around you. Me. You. Right here. Not Kevin, but, you know, I'm saying like you point to yourself. You are the common denominator in every conflict that you've been in. And Jesus in this moment is saying, look, I I want to create a community. Last week, we looked at the culture he wanted to create, and this is the community he wants to create. He wants to create a community where we have a completely different perspective in every relationship we engage in. And the the perspective is this, that people are more important, that you, someone else, is more important than this, whatever this is. 
And in this section, he lists a ton of different things that we can have conflict over. And at the end of the day, he says, look, through all of them, there's a thread that I'm drawing through every conflict you can be in, and it's this, that people are more important than whatever this is. And to begin with it, he's going to say six times in this section, we're not going to go through all six of them, but he, he says six times in this section, you have heard it said, but I say to you. I mean, you've heard it described this way. This is what you should do. But, but I have a new way of thinking about each one of these issues. And he points specifically to the Old Testament law. And he, they had heard it taught a certain way. In fact, the Old Testament law was largely taught by, by the Pharisees and scribes to people. If people wanted to know what the Old Testament law said, they would go to these teachers. They would go to these either rabbis or Pharisees to explain and expose the law. And the law was given to the nation of Israel um, in the Exodus. It was given to, Mo- to Moses, but it was often very complicated. If you ever tried to spend, spend your time reading, I don't know, Numbers or Leviticus, like it can get a little overwhelming. And so these teachers would take this teaching and they would do what any good teacher would do. They would, they would interpret it and make it more applicable for the listeners. So they would take the law and they said, okay, okay th- this is what this part of the law means. Well, well here's how it can play out. And they were doing what a good teacher would do, which is to simply interpret it and explain it. But the problem is they were missing the heart of the law. They were missing the true meaning that that God was intending with the law. And so Jesus literally takes this moment and says, look, you've heard it taught this way. But I want to show you there's something deeper that the law is trying to hit at. You've heard it explained this way, but I want to tell you, there's something deeper that that God wants from his people, and he's not trying to change it. In fact, that's what he says at the beginning. Hey, I'm not trying to change any of the law of God. What I'm simply showing is that the way that we've applied it has been on a surface level and not a deeper level. And so I want to take this teaching and drive it right to the heart. One theologian writes it this way. He says this, I've often felt that Matthew 5.20 was the key to this important sermon. The main theme is true righteousness. The religious leaders had an artificial, that is external righteousness based on the law. But the righteousness Jesus describes is true and vital righteousness that begins internally in the heart. The Pharisees were concerned about the minute details of conduct, but they neglected the major matter of character. Conduct flows out of character. And in this section, what Jesus is going to do is go right to our heart and say, the issue isn't primarily the action. There is a motivation, there's a root deeper than the action that we want to hit. And so what Jesus will do in this entire section is basically this. He'll show us that people are more important. And he'll give us the the, the overlying issue. And then he'll give us the, the, the root issue below that action. And then he'll give us the right response. And we're going to go through that with four different commands that he has. How do we deal with my anger? How do we deal with my lust? How do we deal with my my retaliation for my rights? And then how do we deal with my hate? And as we look at each one of these, I think it'll expose, hey, what is the root issue that each one of us struggle with? And what is the solution that Jesus offers? And so the first one is this, that how we deal with our anger. Verse 21, it starts this way. Now you've heard it said from those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. 
Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Oh my goodness, this is overwhelming. Because the law is this, don't murder. And I think we could all agree with that. Generally speaking, you ought not commit homicide, right? Like I think overall, like that's an easy sell, right? And I think the Pharisees, I know the Pharisees, as they read this, they'd be like, okay, if I haven't killed anyone on Tuesday, it's been a good Tuesday, and they say, check, check box. But what they're missing is there's something deeper there. There's a root that anger grows out of. It's more than just the action, do I not murder. There's a root of anger that sits more deeply. See, the question you've got to ask on every one of these is, what's the cause? What is, what is the deeper issue? This is the sixth commandment. Dr. Constable writes this of this sixth commandment, do not murder, thou shalt not murder. He did not just want the people to refrain from murdering one another. He wanted them to refrain from the hatred that leads to murder. Murder is only the external manifestation of the internal problem. See, the issue goes a lot deeper. And so Stott Stott writes this, that that there's a type of anger that's actually legitimate. So not every demonstration of anger is wrong. There is a righteous anger. In fact, Martin Luther says this, the anger of love one that wishes no evil on one that is friendly to the person but hostile to the sin. There is a a righteous anger. We see that in Jesus. But the issue that he's getting up here is in our interpersonal relationships. How does anger fuel us in our interpersonal relationships? And it comes out with a word that Jesus uses here. Whoever calls his brother raka, meaning fool. Now, we don't use that word. You probably haven't used that word recently with your friends. You raka, you just haven't done it, right? But what it means is this, and we probably have used this. It means you are of no use. You are of no value. Tim Keller writes, it's when you look through someone. When you just bypass them. Hey, you're worthless. It's that type of language. And see, the problem is, as you look at the roots of anger, what, what it does to us personally is say, you know what? You're really not worth my time. You're not worth my energy. You're foolish you're worthless, I'm gonna blow you off. And we all do that. We say you're, at the end of the day, not worth it. You are somehow less than human. You are somehow less important to me. And I don't even deal with it. And so what's crazy about our culture right now is that, is that the collision of our digital age has made our conflicts, in particular on anger, explosive. In fact, I was reading a, in, in one article, and it says this, social media presents the opportunity to be impulsive and trigger-happy. Before you know it, an inflammatory post morphs into a battleground, pitting one person against another. And you've seen this, right? There's Twitter wars all over the place. I remember there was a statement made by someone recently, and someone would not have an individual conversation, but they had a Twitter battle over this issue. Kevin Durant leaves Oklahoma City, and what are the, how are they going to respond? Let's tweet about this, and let's have a fight on Twitter. And so conflict isn't just interpersonal with us anymore. It's blown up to be social, right? And I use social in a very loose time. It's, it's these loose connections of anger that, that are infused and infuriate one another. The digital space has made it crazy. The article goes on to say, the challenge of social media is planning what you want to post as opposed to randomly posting things and being sensitive to the fact of how, they, of how people would take it. 
And it's crazy. Like, you literally have to plan everything that you text to your friends or family or something that you might even Snapchat because you don't know how, how that would, the response of that. I mean, it's crazy. And so in that inflammatory world, there's like, how do I respond to this? How do I respond to the fact that so many people can be angry with a post, a text, a picture, an interpersonal disappointment? How do I respond to that? Well, I think the answer that Jesus gives is, is helpful in every one of those situations. What he says specifically is this, approach them immediately and work it out quickly. Approach them immediately and work it out quickly. Verse 23 says this, so if you're offering your gift at the altar, And there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go first. Be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. He says, look, if you're in church, if you're in worship, and you know that someone has a problem with you, you leave your gift and you go make it right. You stop this moment and you go text that person and you say, look, hey, I just want to get this off my chest. I've wronged you. I've done something to you. And and I say that and you're like, okay, Kevin, maybe I'll give him a text but there's no way I'm actually going to go talk to that person and meet with that person. There's a book called uh, Reclaiming Conversation by Sherry Turkle. And she writes that in our age, literally, we would be much more comfortable sending a text or an email than any face-to-face conversation. Very rarely, if someone wrongs you, will you ever go and talk with them. But Jesus says, and I don't think it's just because of his time and space. You couldn't send a text in Jesus' day. But I think he's saying, look, there's something about interpersonal communication that's so crucial. If you've wronged someone, you drop what you're doing and you go immediately and you work it out quickly. He says, don't let this thing blow up. Don't don't go to the judge. Don't go anything bigger. You just go personally and you work it out quickly. And I'll tell you what, that's crucial. I had a friend of mine who's uh, who's walking through this, this type of issue right now. And it was literally over something tweeted in response to something that he had said. And there was a, like, an inflammatory tweet, like, a, a bit of an accusation, and he's like, what do I even do? And I said, okay, we've got to go to that person. We've got to talk directly to that person. And, and we, there's been no interaction. There's been no, but it was just merely a Twitter person, and we know that they were in town. And he says, literally, he, he called up that person, set up a meeting, and said, let's go talk about this. Apparently, I wronged you, but let's go work through this. And there's a reason for that, because frustrations fester. And people are more important than your anger. People are more important. And then he transitions away from anger into another hot topic, lust. And I wish Jesus had like a better transition, but he doesn't. He's like, you heard it said. You heard it said you shall not commit adultery. Okay, I guess we're in a new field now. Okay. And I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He says, I want to talk to you about another issue, and it's adultery. Adultery is defined by sexual intercourse of a man with a married woman other than his spouse. To commit adultery from the standpoint of the New Testament was normally defined in terms of the married married status of a woman involved with any such act. In other words, sexual intercourse of a married man with an unmarried woman would usually be regarded as fornication. But sexual intercourse of either an unmarried or married man with someone else's wife was regarded as adultery, both on the part of the man 
as well as the woman. The reason I read you that ridiculously long definition was this. Everyone wants to quibble about definitions. What do you mean by adultery? I mean, was it really adultery? I don't know if she was really married. She was kind of separated. Like, well, it doesn't matter to me because I'm in college and no one's married around me, so I'm just going to do something else. Like, okay, well, there's a larger word for that, and it's called fornication. It's all sex outside of marriage. There's, there's a big, another F word in the Bible for you. And he says there's a different route to that. The issue isn't just the act. In fact, that's the culmination. The issue isn't the act. There's something deeper that's at bay here, and it's lust. It's lust that goes unchecked. Lust is a strong desire to have what belongs to someone else or to engage in activity that is, you know is morally wrong. It's to covet. It's to desire. It's to take what's not yours. And I look at that, I'm like, oh man, lust. Is, is, is that an issue in our world today? Is lust a problem in America in 2016? I don't know. I don't know, is lust a problem? Well, there's one industry that's been making billions of dollars that makes their name based on this, and it's one word, one four-letter word, porn. And you look at the porn industry today, and it's, it's astonishing. And I hear so many arguments about, about the porn industry. I, th- I feel some people trying to defend the industry, and I, I read about the porn industry for this, but also I just wanted to know some more. And, and this was what surprised me. You know the average porn star is in the industry for six months to a year? Six months to a year. And when you hear people in this industry saying like, oh, I just love sex. No, they don't. If they really just love sex, they would be there longer than six months to a year. And you say, well, it's just their decision. It's their action. And it's not my problem. Well, apparently, it, lust is the vehicle of choice for most college students. According to Barna, 72% of self-identified Christian college men and 36% of self-identified Christian college women. Let me just say that one more time. of self-identified Christian college men and 36% of self-identified Christian college women reported frequent, that's multiple times a month, porn consumption. Porn is getting us, men and women and Christians. And it hurts the people that, uh, that watch it. There's a study at Indiana State University And it said that they studied, they did a meta-analysis of 22 studies between 1978 and 2014. 1978, when porn was getting started, to to 2014, a couple years ago, as we've seen a huge culmination in consumption and use of it. And it says this, from seven different countries, they concluded that pornography consumption is associated with increased likelihood of committing acts of verbal or physical sexual aggression, regardless of age. They've studied the, the, the effects of uncontrolled lust, of watching other people commit acts, and they said it has increased our verbal or physical sexual aggression regardless of age, and it hurts partners. It hurts people. The University of Tennessee did a study in 2012. It says a study of college-age women with male partners used porn concluded that the young women suffered diminishing self-esteem, relation, the diminished relationship quality, and physical and diminished physical relationship satisfaction correlated with their partner's porn use. It's not even their use, it's his use that's causing me to hurt. And not only that, it destroys marriages. And the lie that, I th- that I've heard so many people buy is once I'm married, this thing will go away. And that's not true. According to the American 
Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers, it reports that 56% of divorce cases involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. 56%, over half of the divorce cases you see are because one of the partners has an unrestrained sexual lust that they can't control. It's hurting us. And Jesus is saying, this is the root that leads to adultery. I mean, this is the root problem of all sorts of problems. And you look at our culture, and, and, and I don't think as a culture, we really think it's a problem. This weekend, I was watching a movie called 17 Again by, with Zac Efron. Oh, that was really fun, right? So it was, a, it was a boring Saturday. I was watching the kids. They were watching their show. And I said, I'm going to watch TBS. And it popped on with 17 Again with Zac Efron. I'd never watched it before. And, uh, and I, was, I was just interested to see, you know, what, what, the, what are the kids watching? I don't know, seven years ago, eight years ago. And so I'm watching it. And, and it's, it's interesting. It, the storyline is this, that, uh, that as an older man... He wishes that he could redo his, his younger days, right? And so he wishes he could be 17 again. And he, he goes back to his days in the high school where he is 17 years old. And what's funny is that, that he doesn't go back in time. He just physically goes, goes back in time. And so he goes to school with his kids, and he gets to see how his kids would engage in high school, which I thought was hilarious to think about. Think about my kids in high school and how I would interact with them. It would be weird. And so I'm just watching this thing play out, and it's crazy. His daughter, he realizes, has this overly sexualized relationship with one of the, with one of the basketball players. And he gets to watch it as someone at school with her. And he's like, oh, my gosh, what's happening? And then they literally go to a sex ed class. And they're sitting there, and, he's, and they, they pass out a huge basket of condoms to everyone in the class. It's a hilarious, weird moment. And, and her boyfriend's, like, grabbing like, condoms by the handful. And he's sitting there behind the guy going, like, what am I going to do? And then he stands up. And he goes, look, I'm not taking these. He goes, I don't need them. And they're like, of course you don't need them. And they're all making fun of him laughing. And, I'm like, and he, goes, he goes, no. He goes, because marriage and sex should produce a loving relationship and a loving child. Like, that's what it should produce. And he stands there, and, and you know, the, it's that moment that the music changes. You know, they're all making this a dramatic moment. All the girls are crying. You're like, I, you should show someone you love them and then have a baby, and it should be in the context of marriage, and it's beautiful. And the girls are like, oh, this is so beautiful. And then he gets in a fight, and, and later on his friend's sleeping with the principal. And it's like a weird kind of mix where they're like holding on to this this value of, I don't know, sex inside of marriage is a good thing. And then all of a sudden, like, but only when, it's, only when it works for me. Only when it's convenient. Only when it's not my daughter doing it. You know, like, then it's okay, but every other time it's kind of all right. And I just look at that, I'm like, man, our, our culture wants to hold these two tensions of, I don't want to be overly lustful, but I don't want to actually change. And what's interesting is that the humor that works, the jokes that work, are all lined up to a freedom in this issue. I was reading um, part of the book by Amy Schumer. She's a comedian, hilarious female comedian, but everything that she says is bent on sexuality. And I read this in her book, and this was actually really surprising. She says, I've actually only had one one-night stand in my life. That's like her confession in her book. I've actually, she talks about sexuality all the time. She's like, I've actually only had one. She says, maybe the misunderstanding comes from the fact that on stage, I grouped together my wildest, worst sexual memories, which is a grand total of about five experiences over the course of 35 years. 
And we're just got this weird culture. If you listen to her humor, she sounds very promiscuous. And at the same time, when she's writing her book, someone who's made their money on being promiscuous and putting herself out there, she goes, I, I don't want to be known by that. I, I'm not really like that. And it's this weird tension of I, of I want to, to not be pushing lust, but at the same time, I, I want to be free, and I just don't know how to ride in that tension. And Jesus goes, goes look, lust will destroy you. If you let that thing breed in you, it'll destroy your relationships. It destroys all sorts of people. And at the end of the day, even unbelievers out there are going, and I don't really want that either. I don't really want to be known by that. And Jesus goes, I know. I know because people are more important than your lusts. That person is more valuable than what you can take from them. And he says, that's why I tell you, get rid of it. Take it out. And he gives this harsh move to get rid of lust in your heart. He says, literally, in the harshest of terms, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go to hell. He says, look, lust will consume you. And the best thing you can do is to rip it out and get it far from you. And so let me ask you, is this something that's destroying you? Is lust a root that you've got to root out? And I would tell you, the best thing to do is stinking run. You don't pet. You don't try to just control lust with you and your buddies. You get it out. You put stuff on your phone. You, you make yourself fully accountable. You root it out. Joseph, literally, when he was in the moment when he had the great opportunity, ran. That's the way to deal with it. The next move he makes to another conflict is this. What happens when my rights are taken away? He says this, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn off for the other also. And if anyone will sue you for your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go with him one mile, go with him too. And it's so interesting. He, he turns, I mean, dramatically. I mean, it's in dramatic fashion. From, from anger to lust all the way to this moment of retaliation. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And I think it's all getting at the same issue. It's this. People are more important than even your rights. They're more important than your anger. They're more important than your lust. I'll tell you what, they're more important than even your rights. People are more important. It's a bigger deal. And literally he says, look, you can retaliate. And, and basically that, that idea is a, is a judicial law that if you wrong me, I have the right to wrong you in the same collateral way. Like if you take my donkey, you owe me a donkey. It's, it's a collateral damage thing. And he says, but look, the problem with that is if you just take collateral damage, there's something that's being taken from your heart. When you give that, there's something that hardens in you. When you live by reciprocity, it hurts you. He says, look, I'm not gonna let that be part of it. I'm gonna root that out. And I've tried to do this with my daughter, right? I've got a six-year-old daughter. And I've told her all growing up, hey, when you have a toy, we share. What do you do with your toy? You share. And what happens if you don't share? Daddy takes away, right? So I take away the toy from everyone. And why do I do that? Because I want her to not be a horrible human being. Like, that's what I want from her, right? 
I want her to share. And she's gotten smarter over the years. And so, so, so she'll like kind of get away to, to give, but with very specific parameters. Like I will give you this marker and you shall have it for 30 seconds. And then you return said marker to me. And I'm like, okay, baby, that's not how you give. And I'm like, I'm like, baby, look, there's something that's hardening in your heart when you use people that way. There's something that hardens in your heart when you just say, hey, you can have what's mine in these very small parameters. Look, I want you to live with open hands. I want you to give freely. And he says, look, an, an eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth is not a way to live. You, you've got to give even when it hurts. He says, that's why, that's why he says, hey, look, give him your cloak. He says, and if a soldier comes and asks you to go one mile, which a Roman soldier could, you could he was required that you carry their armor for one mile. It was a legal law. He says, go with them too. Go the extra mile. He says, what about your money? Yeah, just give it. Hey, if they want your money, just give it. Live open-handed. Why? Because people are more important than your rights. Those relationships are more important than what you hold. And in the last one, actually, he gives the whole reasoning for the whole thing. He says, love is more important People are more important than even your hate. He says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons. Verse 46, for if you love those who love, who love you, what credit is that to you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brothers, what are you, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, which sounds like an, an audacious statement. Okay, give, give freely. Hey, don't hate, just move in love. And just be perfect like God. And I look at that, I'm like, okay, that's really helpful, Jesus. Okay, so, so don't lust, don't be angry, don't be resentful. You just give and just be perfect like the heavenly Father. I'm like, oh, how do I do that? And it's at that moment, I think a quote from Philip Yancey is very helpful. He says this in The Jesus I Never Knew. Thunderously, inarguably, the Sermon on the Mount proves that before God, we all stand on level ground. Murderers, temper throwers, adulterers and lusters, thieves, coveters, we are all desperate. And that is the, and that is the fact that only the state appropriate, that only state appropriately to a human being who wants to know God. Having fallen from the ideal, we have nowhere to land but the safety net of absolute grace. You see, as I look at these rules and I look at this, these laws, I, I say at the end of the day, I would want a culture that is like this. I would want a culture that doesn't hold resentment, that doesn't just retaliate, that, that moves in radical love even against their enemies. Like, I would want to be a people like that. I would want to be in that room and as I look at that, I, I look in at me and I go, that's not in me. <laughs> like, I want to retaliate. I don't always have pure thoughts. I don't always have pure motives. And I said, man, I am not who I need to be. And I fall on my knees and I said, Lord, Jesus, this is ridiculous. At the end of the day, this ask of me is ridiculous. It's not because the laws are bad. It's not some random law that Jesus set up. Oh, yeah, you got to run as fast as Usain Bolt and jump, you know, 10 feet in the air. Like, it's not a ridiculous law. It's like laws that are good. But there's something that Jesus says at the very beginning of this passage that gives all of us hope. 
He says, I came not to take away the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus fulfilled the law. Everything Jesus did in his life, he was perfectly obedient to the Father. He didn't murder, but also he, he moved more than that. He wasn't angry. More than not lustful, he, he moved to help people out of those situations. More than the fact that he wasn't, wasn't demanding his rights, he laid over his rights. He even laid down his life. And not only the fact that he didn't have enemies, he prayed on the cross for his enemies. And he went to the cross and said, Lord, I take it all for them. See, he fulfilled the requirements of the law so that we might be free. And when we bend our knee and say, Jesus, I trust you that you paid the penalty for my sin, the laws that I agree are good that I can't keep, and I trust in you to deliver me. He says, okay, you're in. You're forgiven. And I will empower you by the Spirit to put the death, the deeds of the body, and make yourself alive in me. As we look at the law, I would say, look at the law, the righteous rules, and look at the cross, the one who paid it all so that you could know him and enter into this kingdom. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this morning. And I thank you that you paid it all, that you laid down your life for us, that we might know you and live a new life with you. I pray that you would guide our conversations, that you would open our hearts, open the dialogue, that we'd be honest. And God, by your grace, we might be changed. It's in your name we pray, amen. Hello, and welcome to the Grace College Podcast. My name is Jacob Smith. And I'm Kevin Barra. And we are here on the back end of the sermons to give uh, a little bit more information um, on the sermons and also to dive a little bit deeper into what's going on in our college ministry. Yeah, so we're in the middle, smack dab in the middle, exactly in the middle actually right now, of our series on the Sermon on the Mount, what we're calling Upside Down Living. That's right. Uh, It's been really a joy to to go through Matthew 5. Well, we've only been through five so far and uh, just looking at how Jesus Christ is calling his followers uh, to live in ways that are contrary to the world around them, to essentially turn our behavior upside down uh, in order to disrupt the beliefs of our world so that if we're living out changed lives, uh, then it's going to affect the people around us. And I mean, it's it's been a lot of fun. Um, This past week, we uh, just got to talk about uh, the community that we're building, the community uh, that's formed on love, that's formed on moving towards people. Uh, At Anderson, we got to talk about essentially, I mean, you need to be prioritizing and moving towards people regardless of where they are, regardless of what you might want in the moment, regardless of what they've done to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kevin, uh, I know that you're really wanting to elaborate even on that last <laughs> one of just like what does that forgiveness look like? Like what yeah. does that entail for our community? Well, it, it's, it's interesting. In this particular section, uh, you know, Jesus says, hey, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And he's, he's contrasting the, the common interpretation of his day versus the heart of the law. And each one of these uh, moves that Jesus makes is to, di- to drive a little bit deeper, more than uh, don't murder, but actually don't, 
don't harbor anger and yeah. more than don't commit adultery, but hey, don't don't harbor lust in your heart. And mm-hmm. so he's driving to the heart of it. And I, and as I'm wrestling with this, at the one of the last pieces that he says in this section is um, where he says, "You've heard it said to." love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I, but I tell you that pr- to pray for those who persecute you. And he gives us illustration from the, from God, the father, he says, God, the father causes the sun to shine and the rain to fall even on his enemies. And I, and I read that and I'm like, gosh, if I had the power over rain <laughs> and sun, yeah. what would I likely do? Certain lawns that would <laughs> be very brown. That's right. Your lawn gets no water. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and I just read that and I'm like, gosh, what, what what is it within the heart of the Father that would cause him to give good gifts even to those people that would curse them with the mouth he gave them? Yeah. And uh and as I was looking at it, I was like, the, the thing, the underlying piece is this, that, that God loves people and that people are more important than the actions they commit against us. And, and so that at the end of the day, there's a perspective. I think Jesus wants us to, to grab onto and assist. At the end of the day, people are more important. They're more important than, than the anger that I can hold on to yeah. than the lust that's, that's driving me. And, uh, and as I look at that, I, I go, man, is that something that I do and live with? Do I really believe that people are more important than whatever it is I'm trying to achieve or, or whatever it is that they're, I feel like they're holding me from? And, I, and as, as I think about that, I'm like, man, at the end of the day, let me be about that. Yeah. Let me feel that people are more important than, than whatever it is I'm trying to achieve or whatever I feel like they're hindering me from. Yeah, which is hard, which is, yeah, I mean, why we'd even – encourage, I mean, I'm trying to encourage myself <laughs> along with others mm-hmm. that, you know, this is something to be praying through. You know, like right. this is something to be going for the Lord because thankfully God's not just like, hey, figure it out. He's given us his Holy Spirit right. as our counselor, as our guide, the one who can search our innermost thoughts. And so we ask the Spirit, you know, God, search me, know me, like show me where is it that I'm I'm harboring bitterness or unforgiveness because, mm-hmm. I mean, we were talking in kind of some other conversations and it's like it, it almost is one of those things that will just flare up. Right. And you don't even, you almost didn't even see it coming. And yet in a certain context or in a certain conversation or in talking about a certain issue, all of a sudden you're like, oh, snap, I'm really upset mm-hmm. at that parent or I'm still upset at my spouse or I'm, you know, whatever it might right. be. Um, so asking the the Holy Spirit to be convicting you right. in the midst of that, but even beyond that, asking your community, like turning to the people around you and and telling them to take a you know hard, honest look at your at your life and say, hey, do you do you see unforgiveness? Is there bitterness that you see in my life, or do I yeah. talk negatively about certain people or situations? Uh, have, do you pick up on that? Because mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes we're if we have it long enough, you just become blind to it, right? right. Long-term bitterness, you you just, you're blinded towards it. So right. uh, Accountability we Accountability and, and deep prayer yeah. are crucial to, to move us past that. So yeah. yeah, that's great. Well, we have a couple quick announcements, actually just one announcement that we're making here. Um, over at our Southwood campus, we, uh, we have a event called Bring Your Own Pumpkin. Holla. And it's going to be Friday, October 28th. So this coming Friday from 5 to 7 p.m. over at Gabbard Park. You can find the details on that uh, at our Facebook page. That's Grace College Life uh, or on our website at www.grace-bible.org to come connect and hang out and carve up your 
pumpkin that you bring yourself. Yes, that and, you BYOP. And to clarify, there are ducks at Gabbard Park. I don't know if you needed anything else to add to the excitement, but vicious. There are ducks. Pumpkin loving. You could, ducks. Oh, that would be. You should see. You should see if they'll eat some. It would be awesome. a good experiment. That's awesome. Hey, well, join us next week as we continue our our journey in the Sermon on the Mount, upside down living. And thank you so much for joining us on the Grace College Podcast. Absolutely. Have a great week.